morning. A really good morning. <laughs> I'm grateful for the opportunity to fill in for Chris this morning while he's out of town. My name is Blake Dozier. I'm the youth and family minister here at Oldham Lane. Um, if you've been with us over this past year, you know that on Sunday mornings in 2018, we have been walking through a series called One Word, um, where we examine an important word each week. And this morning, we are going to look at the word gospel. What if I were to ask you to describe the central message of the gospel? How would you do that? The Fuller Youth Institute did a study where they asked this exact question to 535 young people, and I'm going to read for you an excerpt from one of their many responses. This from, comes from a young woman age 18, and she wrote, The central message of the gospel is that someone is always there for you, and there are many different paths you can take, but ultimately they lead to the same thing, which is heaven. I feel like there are many good things you can do and many bad things you can do, but no matter what, you're always going to be forgiven. Even if you think something is unforgivable, God is like this magic person that can always cure it and can make it okay. There's always going to be a happy place, even when you're in your darkest of darks. There's always going to be a light that is there for you. Notice a few things when I look at this response, and it was um, similar to a lot of the responses that they collected. She didn't mention Jesus. She didn't mention his life, his suffering, his death, or his resurrection. The approach is universalist. Heaven is some abstract place in the distance, and grace is kind of a vague sort of magic performed by a fairy godmother. You know, the prevailing attitude toward Christianity among adolescents and churches in general in our culture is what a lot of... Um, people smarter than me refer to as moralistic therapeutic deism. It's big words, but if you break it down, moralistic means that we equate faith with being a generally good moral person. Therapeutic means faith becomes a, a means of feeling better about ourselves. And deistic, God exists, but he's not necessarily involved in our lives with any regularity. So here's what it means to be a Christian in our culture. You are generally a good person who believes in God. And it's worth it. The good news for you is this, that you have a faith that helps you feel better about yourself and cope with tough situations. So my question for you is, is that such a bad way to look at things? I mean, I mean when, we, when we really consider it, you should generally be good. No one's going to debate us on that. Behavior modification can't be separated from Christianity. You obviously have to believe in God. Christianity certainly requires that. Your faith does, in a sense, provide self-confidence and worth. It also gives us hope, and it gives us something to look forward to. But I find this approach unsatisfying. I think a lot of you probably would as well. I know our young people sitting over there don't think that's enough. If we really put our view of the gospel under a magnifying glass, what would we see? This morning we're going to study 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to look at what Paul has to say about the gospel message that he preached. So if you'll open your Bible to that passage, and while, you are, um, while you're getting there, um, we're going to spend the entirety of our time there this morning. So it's worth your time to go ahead and open, open your Bible or your device. 
While you turn, I'm going to give you a brief history of the word gospel. You know, what has turned into a churchy word um, used to be common talk. We find the word in secular writings outside of the Bible, and, and it would simply be translated good news. So good news, we might say, and you could fill in the blank, good news, it rained last night. Um, good news, my favorite team won the Super Bowl. Um, in fact, prior to Christ and the teachings of the apostle, the term gospel really wouldn't have carried much significant weight at all. I'm reminded of a Taoist parable of a farmer whose horse ran away. I've told the kids this story before. And that evening, his neighbor came over and he said, oh, what horrible news, you've lost your horse. The neighbor said, eh, good, bad, who knows. The next morning, uh, the horse returned. But it didn't just come by itself. It brought with it six wild horses. The neighbor came over that evening, and he expressed his excitement. What good news, he said. Now you, you had one, but now you have seven horses. And the neighbor said, good, bad, who knows. The next day, his uh, son tried to saddle and break one of the wild horses, and he was bucked off, and he broke his leg. So, of course, the neighbor came over that evening. What horrible news. What bad news, he said. The, the guy said, well, good, bad, who knows. The very next day, a military group came through the village, and they were um, enlisting young people to fight in civil war. When they saw that his son had a broken leg, they passed over him. The next day, the, the neighbor came and said, what good news. Your son didn't have to go to fight. The neighbor said, good, bad, who knows. The story is, is funny, and we could go on and on, but we all know that it's true because we felt that tension. Our understanding and our insight is so small. Often what we initially see as good turns out to be a huge struggle for us, and, and then oftentimes what we proclaim to be bad or horrible can turn into an experience that's really valuable in shaping us. It's the storyline of almost every movie that's on the market today. It pulls us through a variety of different emotions, and at first glance it seems to be the story of Jesus himself. Think about it. Mary is pregnant out of wedlock. What horrible news. The child is the Messiah from God. What, what good news. Uh, but he's not doing things like we thought he would. What bad news. But these miracles are really incredible. What, what good news. But his teachings are really tough to swallow. What bad news. But you know, he's challenging the corruption of the religious leaders. What good news. But he was just arrested. What bad news. He was just convicted. What bad news. He was just crucified. What horrible news. And so at the beginning of each of the account of Jesus' life, or at the end of each of the account of Jesus' life, we find the followers of Jesus distraught at the bad and horrible things that have just happened to their teacher. They're shell-shocked, they're fearful of the Jews and the power that they seem to hold over them. It's been three days, and I don't know that the reality has set in, but we find ourselves at the end of the Gospel of John with Mary, and she's distraught outside the tomb. And as the tears roll down her face, a man who she presumes to be the gardener appears behind her. And she begs him to tell her, just tell me where the body is so that we can give it a proper burial. And when he speaks her name, Mary, you can just see the, the, the neurons in her brain start to fire and the connections start to make. And she exclaims, teacher, 
teacher, because this wasn't the gardener. It wasn't the gardener. It was her teacher. It was Jesus. And in John 20, 18, we see that Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. I don't know how you picture Mary in this moment, but I believe her announcement to them was filled with excitement and joy and relief. There was no hint of good, bad, who knows. <laughs> Not in Mary's voice, because this was good news. It was undeniably good. It was unwavering good news. This news was so good that no longer does the phrase good news fit. This became the good news. This was the pinnacle of the gospel story that we're going to talk about this morning. I asked you earlier to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Many of you were taught, and rightly so, to turn to this passage when you're asked the question, what is the gospel? And so we're going to study this passage this morning, and I believe you will find, as we unwrap the entirety of this teaching, that Paul really didn't write this letter to give us a definition of the gospel. He didn't write it to give us a definition of the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He wrote this passage to remind the Corinthians, and I believe us, what the resurrection of Jesus meant for them. That's the heart of the gospel, and this passage is about the power of the gospel. So I want to send you home with that message this morning, and we're going to start by reading in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 15, 1 reads, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you. That's the only time you'll actually hear the word gospel in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. Paul begins this passage of teaching with a powerful sentence that carries with it, I believe, a tinge of frustration. Those of you who are parents can relate to this. I'm in the process of trying to make things stick in the mind of Braxton, my three-year-old. And it can get pretty frustrating at times. And I'm not usually so calm as to say, now Braxton, I would like to remind you of the things that I've taught you about. Um, but nevertheless, he gets an enormous amount of reminders, um, and he's learning to respond really well to those, about fundamental and important things that we want him to know. So I can feel that same sigh of emotion in Paul's voice as he gets to this part at the end of 1 Corinthians, and it's like, here we go again. I'm going to remind you, I'm going to circle back to one of the most basic teachings. But you know, the Corinthians needed to be reminded, and I think that we do too. The truth, according to the text, and is what we stand in and is what we are being saved. It's the confidence that we have in our salvation. This is our anchor and hope, and it's important. And here's what he says that it is. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Paul had just spent a good portion of this book teaching on correct living, on worship. He spoke about division in the church. He spoke about church discipline, sexual immorality, marriage, eating a food sacrifice to idols, male and female roles and relationships. He talked about the Lord's Supper. He talked about miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit, and he talked about worship. Those are a pretty intense list of really important things, real-life issues that the church in Corinth wrestled with, Many of them are issues that we wrestle with as well, but as we reach the end of the book, okay, Paul is careful to draw the reader back to the main point. 
Church doctrine is important, but it's not the gospel. Right worship is important, but it's not the gospel. The good news is centered on the resurrection of Jesus Christ who died for our sins. The passage goes on um, to teach us several things about the center point of the gospel. And here's the first one. The gospel is backed by evidence. The resurrection was a publicly witnessed and widely recognized event. It was the focal point and cornerstone of the apostles' teaching, and it is of our entire belief system. If we pick up in verse 5, we read, And that he appeared to Cephas and then the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. About a year ago, I was given the, uh, I'll say privilege, since Mr. Harper is here this morning, of serving on a jury. And a lot of evidence was brought before us. The testimony of eyewitnesses, however, carried significant weight. Paul begins this powerful section of teaching by reminding the church in Corinth that the central message of the gospel, what was preached to them was a true and factual event that was confirmed by the testimony of hundreds of witnesses. They were not asked to have blind faith. They were asked to consider the evidence. The evidence of witnesses and the testimony of Scripture. And, and church, we're not asked to have blind faith either. In fact, if you're struggling with Christianity, I would challenge you to weigh the evidence. Everything about our faith relies on Scripture. And so the question that we have to ask is, can I trust the testimony within the pages of this book. And I believe that when you consider the evidence, you will find overwhelmingly that the Bible is a book like none other, that it must be the Word of God that it claims to be. There's 40 authors. It's written over a period of 1,500 years without contradiction. It keeps the same storyline, and it builds upon one another perfectly. You'll find scientific foreknowledge in the Old Testament that wasn't discovered until the last 100 years. You'll find hundreds of fulfilled prophecies. You see archaeological evidence that supports the biblical narrative to a T. You'll find a humanly impossible level of preservation and consistency within the text itself. I could go on and on, but, but the point is, we are called to have a faith. But we've never been asked to have a blind faith. And I believe, I believe wholeheartedly that our belief system is backed by evidence. I believe that the Corinthian church needed it. I think that we need that, and I think that when we look at the Bible and extra-biblical evidence, we will find that we can stake our confidence in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. Knowing that, the resurrection um, is central to everything that we believe. Everything hinges on that. And so Paul goes on to write in verse 12, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? So we begin to see the issue in 1 Corinthians 15 that he's addressing. Some within the church believed that there was no resurrection. And Paul points out to them that this is a logically inconsistent place for a Christian to find themselves. In fact, he goes on in verse 12, he says, Now, I'm sorry, in 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he, whom he did not raise, if it's true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. The suffering of Christ was useless without it. The persecution of the early church was useless without it. The family center that we just built is useless without it. Being here is useless without it. Reading our Bibles is useless without the resurrection. It all means nothing if Christ wasn't resurrected from the dead. If Christ wasn't resurrected from the dead, we of all people should be pitied. How silly of us. That makes me particularly thankful for the evidence that we spoke of earlier. It makes me thankful because it means we don't have to put ourselves in this logical pickle. We can have the same confidence that Paul has in verse 20. He doesn't, he doesn't stutter. He says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Because of the resurrection, we can have confidence that death is not final. It sets a precedence knowing that death has been defeated. The text tells us that through Christ, all shall be made alive. And he draws us back to the story we know too, all, all know well, the story of the first man, Adam, in the garden who chose sin instead of God. And while Adam brought sin and death to all mankind... Paul tells us that Christ brings forgiveness and life to all mankind in the same manner. But the good news is so much more than just that. It's so much more than simply knowing death is not final. Death becomes our victory. Paul begins to formulate this argument in verse 35 through 38. You know, I get asked a lot of silly questions at times. Um, at home by our children. They haven't always exactly developed the skill of connecting the dots in most situations. And again, I think Paul has a little bit of frustration in verse 35 when he says, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? What kind of body do they come? <laughs> you foolish person, Paul says. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. Paul tells them, your body in the resurrection will be as different from what you are now as a seed of grain is from the plant it transforms into. Your body in the resurrection will be as different from what you are now as a butterfly is from a caterpillar. Death of the old self is an important part of this process. A kernel of grain completely ceases to become to be a kernel of grain, and so will it be with you. Something bigger, something better, and something more glorious awaits us around the corner. But death has to occur for us to get there. So in the dozen verses that follow, Paul fleshes this idea out. The idea that through death and resurrection, we will undergo a major change. And then we pick back up with him in verse 50. This is important, so listen closely to what I read. 
I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ. Death will not have the last word for us. In fact, death becomes our victory. The death that consumes every living being on this planet, the death that has stung mankind for thousands of years, becomes our greatest victory because of the gospel and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can and should look forward to death because in our current state, we can't inherit the kingdom of God. But in our resurrected state, we become an eternal member. We tend to save this passage for funerals. But I think it should be our battle cry for daily living. What a glorious day it will be when we are new, unperishable, and heavenly bodies when we get to see what they're like. Thanks be to Jesus and to his resurrection that make this possible. And that, that's the good news. That's the gospel. So what about today? What about right now? You know, Paul began this passage of teaching stating that he was about to remind them of the gospel they received, in which they stood, and by which they were being saved. And after all of this teaching, in verse 58, he ends with a similar piece of encouragement. He writes to them, Therefore, in other words, because of everything that we just discussed, because of the resurrection, and because of what it means for you, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In the interim, between now and eternity, we stand. We carry ourselves with a different type of confidence. We carry ourselves with a different type of hope. We carry ourselves with meaning and purpose. I've never seen anything quite like the construction project next door. Um, I kind of had a front row seat since I came to the office every day. But I'm going to tell you all, when we first started building, I think everyone wondered when we were going to do something. They did stuff for a long time before we saw everything. So every day I looked out and they were digging another hole and filling it with concrete. And then they'd put some sort of steel in the ground and cover it up and dig more out and pour more concrete. And I mean, the end result is for months, they built stuff that we couldn't see at all. But they did their best to build a structure that would stand firm. The gospel is our foundation. It's the stable and rooted truth that we hold to when everything around us is in flux. And we all know that that's how life is. Knowing that the resurrection of Christ occurred and knowing that our own resurrection is coming is what permits us to be steadfast and immovable. But it's more than just our foundation. It moves us to action. We are, the text says, to abound in the work of the Lord. It would appear from this passage that the ultimate work of the Lord is restoring souls through Jesus Christ. God has done a lot of powerful things. We could go on and on about the different ways that he works, 
But none is so special as saving mankind. None is so special as cultivating a garden of humanity and growing mankind into a flourishing, eternal, and glorious being that he's made us capable of being. He plants us as bare kernels, and he grows us into a blossoming, eternal garden. In the interim between now and eternity, with confidence and resolve, we make the Father's business our business. And that's what his business is. The central message of the gospel is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a historically established fact. It shows us that death is not final. And because of it, death becomes our greatest victory. The gospel changes everything. A lot of petty and unimportant things compete for my attention. And I needed to be reminded of the power of Christ's resurrection that's working in me to defeat death. And I would guess many of you did as well. If you have not joined yourself to Jesus Christ, this chapter doesn't apply to you. And you can't, you can't take the same message away. It was written to the church in Corinth, a group of baptized believers and followers of Christ. And if you don't share that in common with them, then instead of a reminder of, thing, or a, a reminder of things to come, this passage takes the form of a snapshot of what is available. The Bible teaches that the gospel is for everyone. Everyone who will reach out and take hold of it. And, and we would love to study with you about how that happens and what that looks like. The Bible is clear. You must believe that what I just preached was true. That Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he died for our sins, and that he rose from the dead. You must repent. You must attach yourself to Christ through baptism. If you're ready for that step, the water is waiting and the invitation is yours. We invite you to come forward as we stand and as we sing.